Hi, this is Bob. I just wanted to let you know that the conversation you're about to hear and or see is actually two conversations. The first conversation was taped before Russia invaded Ukraine. Then after the invasion, Kishore was kind enough to come back and talk with me a little about how the invasion looks from China's point of view. So that part is at the end of the conversation. Um, while I've got you here, I might as well suggest that if you like The Right Show, you might rate and review us. It really does help. If you don't like The Right Show, forget that I ever even suggested rating or reviewing us. Anyway, now I will get out of the way and let you enjoy a conversation that I really enjoyed and got a lot out of. You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Kishore. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Very well. Good, good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Kishore Ma- Mabubani. Is that correct? Have I Absolutely correct. Uh, okay. Well, that's the last time I'll try the, the last name. I'm not going to press my luck. I'll stick with the first <laughs> name from here on out. Uh, and you are, uh, you're in Singapore. You are uh, a longtime uh, Singapore diplomat, for one thing. You were uh, Singapore's uh, representative to the United Nations, I think, for a time. And in fact, you were president of the UN Security Council. I'm pretty sure I've never spoken to someone who was president of the UN Security Council. That was 2001, 2002, right? Uh, I'd say in January 2001 and uh, May 2002. It's one month per uh, presidency. Okay. Uh, oh, I see. Okay. So, uh, but those were interesting times uh, in the run-up run up to the Iraq war. We need to revisit that because I want to talk mainly today about uh, China. Uh, you mm-hmm. have, uh, your most recent book is called Has China Won? Uh, the Chinese Challenge to American Primacy. You've written a number of books. You're also an academic, I should say. Um, mm. uh, and you run something called the Asian Peace Program, which people can, right. can Google if they're interested in Asian peace. Um, and uh, so I want to talk about the things you talk about in your book. Um, and I want to start with the title, Has China Won? That suggests competition. And one thing I'd like to get clearer on in this conversation is what exactly America and China are competing over and also kind of what they should be competing over. So, for example, maybe one way to start is Suppose you were running the United States, you were president, and you had decided you just wanted to pursue America's interests. You know, that's not the only thing you you could consider. You 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 could you could decide you want to influence China's human rights policy and so on. And we'll get into that. Uh, and for that matter, maybe their human rights policy does influence American interests. Uh, but uh, but but I'd like to start with the question of if if you were focused on America's interest, what would you think? it did make sense to compete with China over, if that that makes sense. Very good question. And I want to emphasize at the very outset that I speak as a friend of the United States of America. Uh, My wife uh, was born and brought up in Summit, New Jersey, and two of my children live in uh, the U.S. So I'm not anti-American in any way. But at the same time, as a friend of as a friend of America, if you see your friend walking towards a cliff, 
do you tell the friend, keep on walking? Or do you tell the friend, stop, stop, you're going towards a cliff? And that's exactly what America is doing in terms of handling China. Because what Americans don't realize, and, and I'm talking actually of the most liberal, the most thoughtful American intellectuals uh, and, and their perspectives on China, they don't seem to understand that the very idea that a 250-year-old upstart in world history could convert a 4,000-year-old civilization with four times the population and, and convert it to become a replica of the United States of America. And the very thought of it is so arrogant. And, un, and future historians will say, this is unbelievable. What were these guys thinking? So what we are seeing today in China is a very natural return of a civilization which over 4,000 years goes for one, 200 years, it goes down. And it has gone down for 150 years. And then it's coming up for another 200 years now. And it's just beginning to come out. And the idea that this civilization, when it wakes up, is going to forget its 4,000-year-old history and say, hey, 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 I want to be like America. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an absolutely stupid assumption that, that completely fogs American thinking on China. Because the, at the end of the day, one thing that Asians who live in Asia know this is an old civilization. It will remain Chinese civilization. It will behave like Chinese civilization, and we can get along with it. Okay, but it will let, not become like us. Let, let's let's stay with this theme a while. I want to get back to the the question of of you know what America's national interest would seem to suggest about about the key areas of competition. But uh, on that theme. What do you think uh, from China's perspective and, and not just the leadership, but I mean the Chinese people's perspective or maybe those people who support the leadership, which I think Americans may or may not realize is a very large number of Chinese. The leadership has pretty broad only, support. Only 93 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Is that I, I gather one survey suggested that uh, gave that kind of number for. And we can you think we can trust that number? I mean, in other words, this, the survey results aren't influenced by concerns among Chinese that uh, of what will happen if they express dissent or anything. You think that's a solid number? Well, I think all you have to do is go to China and travel around China. And, you know, for my as part of my research for my book, uh, Has China Won? I spent two months at Fudan University. And, you know, the Chinese people have seen far greater improvement in their lives over the past 30 years or 40 years than they have seen in 3,000, 4,000 years of Chinese history. For the Chinese people, and it's important to remember the bottom 50% through much of Chinese history struggled to eke out a living, you know, really struggled, Okay. And then suddenly, all these people now have what? They have houses, they have jobs, their children are getting educated, they get medical care. And you know what? If, if China was really a closed, repressive society, would 139 million leave China freely? <laughs> okay, that's about twice the population in the United Kingdom. And then these stupid people... Return to China freely. So they, to they what leave, is supposed to be a repressive society. So they go out on come vacation on. And, and they could, you mean, and they could stay, but they come back. They, they, 
it's not like yeah. it's not like the the uh you know the berlin wall it's not like they're you know the, it's it's like it wouldn't be that hard to leave they're not leaving no they can leave anybody can leave china yeah so uh, and, and you except so, now i mean covid covid is a problem right. now so let me let me ask you if you are uh what are the things we do or say by by which I mean America that most annoy them th- that uh, that they think are most unjustified intrusions on uh, I don't know their 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 sovereignty or their uh, their pride or whatever. Well, I think it's important. I want to emphasize that uh, I believe that the United States and China can have a win-win relationship, absolutely, where the American people basically are better off and the Chinese people are better off. So that, that, is a, and that is the end goal of my writing. I think it can be done. But of course, it can only be done if you, number one, treat China with respect. You know, America is the only country in the world, I think, whose leaders insult China. In what way? I can tell you, no, no Asian country insults China. What, what do we say that insults China? Just you just have to read uh, the speech that Mike Pompeo gave at the Nixon Library, I think, on the some anniversary of Kissinger's visit in in twenty twenty one, and and you can see uh, that there's all speeches he gave. No, twenty twenty. I mean, those sorts of speeches. The condescension, the idea that we're going to liberate the Chinese people, that the Chinese government is illegitimate, that the Chinese government is repressive, you know, and all these things. And and the point is, if if you really want to engage in a geopolitical contest, and I've been studying geopolitics for over 50 years, since 1971, the first rule of geopolitics is know thine enemy. (laughs) Know thyself, fight a thousand battles, win a thousand battles. And if you completely misunderstand China and you don't understand what its strengths and weaknesses are, then you will lose the fight. And the Chinese, this is the biggest advantage the Chinese have over the United States of America. The Chinese leaders think long-term and have a long-term strategy for managing the United States of America. United States, and as I say in my book, this was told to me, uh, the conversation I had with Henry Kissinger, United States doesn't have a long-term strategy. If you yeah. ask any, any person in the administration, what are you trying to achieve? What is your goal? Let me give you through high, three hypothetical examples. Overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. Cannot be done. Isolate China. Cannot be done. Stop the Chinese economy from becoming number one. Cannot be done. So what are your objectives? So you have to learn to live with realities. That's what geopolitics is about. And and the United States of America can remain the most admired society in the world even even after China becomes the number one economy. Now, that's a possible goal. That's a realistic goal. And that's what the United States should try to do. So that I mean that takes us back to in a way my original question. Uh, you're saying that that America's national interest lies to some considerable extent in 
just trying to become a, uh, an admirable society, uh, as it long its has been, but not so much recently, I think. I, I mm. mean, uh, now that almost suggests to me that the answer to my original question is that in terms of actual competition with China in a more material sense than that, like competing over Taiwan or competing over the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Like uh, feeling threatened by the Belt and Road Initiative or, uh, or for that matter, uh, comp- you know, the, the issue of uh, the South China Sea, uh, navigation rights or, or I, you know, who, you know, various islands belong to in the South China Sea or the East China Sea. I mean, are you, are you saying those are not, are, are none of those areas that an American president focused on national interests should be concerned about? I'm glad you used the word national interests. Because the first thing you need to do when you engage in a geopolitical competition like the one the United States has launched against China. There's no question whatsoever that the United States has launched a geopolitical contest against China. No question. The trade tariffs, the efforts to set up the Quad, the AUKUS, all the, these are the, actions The Quad against being China. this group of countries, India, Japan, Australia, and the US, right? Exactly. Right. They're all and moved to sort of, in some way or another, constrain China. But of all the issues that you mentioned, the most dangerous issue in U.S.-China relations is Taiwan. Because if there's one issue that can actually lead to war between the United States and China, it is Taiwan. Because there's absolutely no question, and let there be no doubts about this. If Taiwan declares independence and says it wants to become an independent country, China will declare war. It's not 100% certainty, and everyone in Asia knows this. So the best thing we can do is keep the status quo, which preserves autonomy for Taiwan, and that way you avoid a war. South China Sea, there'll be no war. Absolutely You're sure no of that? Because, oh, because, you know, the United States says its primary interest is to protect freedom of navigation in South China Sea. Now, the United States, as you know, is not a claimant to any territories in the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. If there's going to be a war, it could be a war between China and the Philippines or China and Vietnam or China and Malaysia, which is unlikely, by the way, and I'll explain why. But uh, in the case of the United States, it says that it has an interest in freedom of navigation. And guess what? The country that has a greater interest then United States in freedom of navigation is China. <laughs> because China trades more with the world than the United States does. So when the United States Navy keeps international waterways open, it is doing China a massive favor. Although isn't China there, is actually... There is an issue uh, over the South China Sea that was taken to an international tribunal, right? And China lost, I gather. And I thought that mm. was about, and and did not respect the ruling, as I understand it. And I thought that was about something about navigation. That wasn't about the islands, right? Uh, uh, I, it was. It was about. Uh, uh, is I don't think it's an island per se. It's, right. It's a f- feature, I think. And uh, the Philippines won the case. Right. Right? 
uh, and China is not going to respect it. But as you know, most great powers violate international law some of the time, not all the time. And as you know, the United States has a base in Diego Garcia, which the, which the ICJ has declared that the British uh, ownership of the base is illegal and it should be returned to Mauritius. And neither United States nor UK are going to abide by the World Court ruling. It's not surprising. That's how great powers behave. And so uh, China will not uh, abide by the ruling, but China is engaged in intense private discussions with the Philippines to try and find a solution. Okay. And 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 that's what that's what that's what that's how that that's a that's a problem not within United States and China, it's a problem within Philippines and China. Okay, so there's no real issue with freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. It exists, and China is not challenging it. China China would lose more if there's no freedom of navigation. Right. So, okay, and and um, as for Taiwan, it sounds to me like you're saying. The less America talks about it, the better, because uh, I've had the impression that China would just as soon uh, live with the status quo for quite some time. I mean, its official policy is eventual reconciliation of Taiwan, integration of Taiwan, mm-hmm. but it would say back into, you know, into China. It, it considers uh, Taiwan to have always been part of China. Um, and uh but, you know, I, I don't think they want to in, invade Taiwan. And I've wondered whether the amount of rhetorical attention the United States pays to Taiwan, uh, you know, increases the chances of war, uh, you know, makes it harder, just arouses various forces that could uh, that could cause trouble. Is that is that your view that that the less America talks about it, the less likely war will be? Well, you know, the one lesson of geopolitics is that when great powers raise human rights issues, it is only brought up when it is a convenient geopolitical weapon. So in 1971, when Kissinger went to China, and in 1972, when Nixon went to China, China was in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. The human rights abusers in China under the Cultural Revolution were off the scale. What did the United States do? It didn't see any of it. In fact, for all the years in which the United States collaborated with China, and they collaborated to the extent of uh, putting up CIA listening stations in Xinjiang, by the way, uh, to against the Soviet Union. So today, when the United States expresses concern over Taiwan, to be honest with you, it's not because the United States cares about the people of Taiwan. It's because it's a convenient geopolitical issue to use against China and to say that China is threatening democracy. So that's, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be too cynical, but if tomorrow uh, uh, the United States suddenly decided that China is very important there's an asteroid coming down, going to, going to hit planet Earth. And the only two countries that can fob it off is United States and China. Taiwan will disappear from the radar. Right. So uh, it's all about what your interests are. And, and I actually think that the United States can find a better way of competing with China. 
and not resort to this, uh, uh, what you call, trying to pinch China on small issues, it's much more important to work out a comprehensive, long-term strategy which says, hey, for the United States, these are my fundamental long-term interests, right? And these are your fundamental long-term interests. How do we work together? Okay. And we have to disagree on some issues. And there will be disagreements on some issues. How do we manage the disagreements? Because at the end of the day, it's very clear that the final solution cannot be a war. Because if you do have a war, I don't know which city you're in, but LA will disappear, San Francisco will disappear, New York City will disappear. And that's not worth anything, yeah. right? A nuclear war. So yeah. there are some issues that can trigger a nuclear war, and we want to stay clear of that. Yeah, I'm actually safe. I'm in New Jersey. I don't think anybody would bother with New Jersey. But uh, the uh, so um, let's, st let's stick a little bit with the human rights thing because you, you brought it up. Mm -hmm. And first of all, it's interesting. You brought it up with respect to Taiwan. And that, that's interesting because China would almost naturally consider our uh, objections over Taiwan to be kind of in the realm of human rights because it considers Taiwan part of China. There are people in America who uh, who, who think of uh, the, the China-Taiwan issue as comparable to the Russia-Ukraine issue in the sense that they think of it as a as a sovereign country. Now, um, and we've already talked about the fact that that's just not China's perception. Uh, another issue, though, the, the biggest issue probably that comes up in the realm of human rights in the American conversation is, of course, uh, the situation with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Uh, what I assume that uh, that's one of the things that it, uh, the Chinese leadership and, and maybe many of the Chinese people uh, don't want to be lectured about by the United States. How 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 do they perceive that? Do, do they is it that they um, just frame the whole issue otherwise, or they think we don't understand why they've resorted to what they're doing, or do they think we're exaggerating what they're doing, or what? Do you have any sense for what the the Chinese perception of the Uyghur situation is? Well, the Chinese perception of the Uyghur situation is that. Uh, the United States, when it was attacked after 9-11, decided to respond uh, partly as an act of revenge, partly as an act of deterrence by invading Afghanistan and then invading Iraq, right? And it was seen as retaliation against the 9-11 attack. The Chinese were subject to similar attacks from uh, Uyghur separatists and so on and so forth. So when I was in Shanghai, I was told China also had its 9-11 moment. And that's when China decided to say, this will stop. This won't happen. And what's interesting is that the, China, the Americans say that the uh, Chinese are not respecting the rights of Muslims in Xinjiang. Now, when the United States... Uh, uh, in the Cold War accused the Soviet Union of suppressing the Muslims in Afghanistan, the Muslim world agreed with the Soviet Union and supported the United States. Today, when the United States says that China is suppressing the Muslims of Xinjiang, not one Muslim government 
has agreed with the United States. And, and this is, you have a really strange situation in the world. Again, future historians will remark on this, that you have a bunch of Christian countries going to the UN, expressing concern over the Muslims in Xinjiang, and 37 countries or 39 countries, including mostly Muslim countries, saying we understand what China is doing. Now, some people might say that that's because a lot of Muslim countries need commercial engagement with China or for various other reasons don't want to offend China. I, I suspect the Muslim country that's come closest to taking issue with China over this is Turkey because there is an ethnic connection there. And I just want to I, I want to focus on this for one second because uh, I want people to, to understand what China thinks the issue is. OK, so the, the Uyghurs are Turkic people and the, mm. the separatists among them uh, focus on that uh, at, at probably at, uh, as much as Islam as a reason uh, for wanting to actually uh, carve off a part of what China considers uh, China and and uh, and 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 divorce China. Um, so I gather you said they're 9 11. There there was what a there was was there was some kind of terrorist attack or something over explicitly over the separatist issue that I, yes. I gather what. Uh, was this the thing where there was it was like a mass stabbing and like a hundred people were killed or something? This is the yeah, thing. I'm I, I, I I don't have the precise figures. Yeah, you can Google and get the figures, but it was a traumatic event for the Chinese because the Chinese, as you know, if you ever go to China, you'll see how they live with great security. There are very few police around, very few people carrying any kinds of arms around or guns around, and then suddenly to have that kind of peace being disrupted by these mass killings. Of course, that was a more shocking moment for them. Now, you mentioned Turkey. By the way, Turkey is no longer uh, part of that. Uh, the, Turkey didn't sign the letter that was drafted by the United States and Europeans. Oh, did they Xinjiang. take their name off it? There was a letter they signed, I thought. But, uh, yeah, maybe was, I, I, think, okay. I think they, they, they were critical for a while and then they uh -huh. have now uh, changed their position. But just, by the way, very, a very quick point about the fact that the Muslim countries may be indebted to China. Saudi Arabia is not indebted to China. Uh, Saudi Arabia is an American ally. Saudi Arabia is the custodian of the Holy Mosque. And uh, and I think it, this is one thing that I think many Americans find very difficult to respect the intelligence of other states, which may be making decisions not necessarily on commercial grounds, but on purely rational grounds, saying, what will the 21st century be like? Who will we have to live with? And how do we work out a long-term relationship? Uh, with, with, with China. And so I think that the countries that uh, are making intelligent, thoughtful, rational decisions. And what I find very puzzling is that the United States has got the world's best universities, the world's best think tanks, the world's best newspapers, but it doesn't listen to the world. <laughs> Amazing. It doesn't understand that there has been a sea change in the whole world's perceptions and attitudes towards China. Now, it doesn't mean, by the way, that they love China. It doesn't mean that they're going to become supplicant to China, but they understand that the return of China 
is the single biggest historic event probably of the last 200 years. Together with the return of Asia, I want to add, by the way. Huh? Uh, as you know, i just come out with a book called The Asian 21st Century or so. And so this is the big change and we all are adjusting and adapting to it as intelligently as possible. And all these countries that are treating China with respect want to have good relations with the United States also. Mm-hmm. They want to see a strong United States, but they don't want the United States to say, you're either with me or you're against me. Okay, I want to um, I want to get back to that. First, I want to, I want to dwell just a little longer because I know I'm from experience that people who listen to these things uh, complain if you don't dwell on this stuff a little longer. But the, on the, sure. the internal uh, issues that we see as important um, human rights issues, I guess there's a couple of things you said that uh, uh, that I might push a little further on. Um, maybe they're related. I mean, one is you said you know. Uh, China is used to having um, kind of uh, civil security, internal security with very few police. Uh, Americans think of China as this surveillance state that whether or not you see a lot of police with uh, weapons walking around uh, is, is a state that, y- you know, has cameras everywhere, has the social credit system monitoring uh, people's behavior and so on. And so is oppressive in that sense. And perhaps relatedly, they might say, well, Americans, uh, OK, so 100 people were killed in a terrorist attack. But still, you know, the, the, what's apparently going on or has gone on in, in Xinjiang is by American lights uh, seems massively oppressive. We hear numbers like a million Uyghurs. Uh, Americans use the term concentration camps, which I think is misleading given what it suggests, given the resonance it has from World War II. That's not not what these are like, but still, it is internment. It is involuntary confinement, apparently. Um, so, I, I just uh, you want to address either of those kind of closely related things? Well, I I think it's important to emphasize that there are one point four billion people in China. And there are 20 million, I think, in Xinjiang. And you mentioned uh, cameras and policemen. Uh, yes, I saw cameras and policemen in Xinjiang. So you, you've been to uh, Xinjiang. In, you've been to the province I, itself. I, I went there in 2018 okay. when I was researching my book. And this stuff had and started yes, by then. Uh, this had started. The internment yes, had yes, started. Yes, yes, Okay. And certainly in, uh, in Urumqi, uh, you could see cameras and policemen everywhere. But what was striking is that it was the exact opposite of the rest of China. And if you go to the, uh, if you see the other 1.38 billion people in China, they live without policemen. And I, I think you, you I, I don't know whether you've had Ambassador Chess Freeman on your show. I've, I've met him. He hasn't been on the show. Yeah. yeah, but I, I cite him in my book, you know. He makes a very important point. If the United States had the same ratio of people to arable land as China, United States wouldn't have 330 million people. United States would have 4 billion people. Now, he said, if you have 4 billion people living in the United States, It'll be very crowded. 
And you therefore want to have more discipline, more order, more rules. And that's what Chinese society has worked out over 4,000 years. So when you, when you travel around China, a lot of the discipline and order that you see in Chinese society is something that is desired by the population. Because in the Chinese mind, the one lesson of 4,000 years of history is that the, China does its most when there's chaos, when there's Luan. And so the Chinese have this incredible deep aversion to chaos. And they love order and predictability and stability. And that's why uh, in most cities, there, is, there are no, well, you, seriously, there are, not, there are not many policemen. Yeah. And you walk around and there's no crime. Yeah. Okay? So you can, you know, uh, you can go around Shanghai anywhere at night and nobody's going to rob you. And that's not because there are lots of policemen. It's because there's a culture that has developed in the society. And it's, it's, it's a very tough discipline. By the way, if you do break the law, the punishment is hard, harsh. But that also ensures that very few people break the law. Yeah. So, so you can understand that when, 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 so when you talk of uh, human rights, from the point of view of the Chinese people, and especially if you take human rights in the broadest philosophical sense, I studied philosophy, as you know, the first right, as you know, is the right to live, the right to eat, the right to be housed, uh, the right to an education, uh, uh, the right to medical things. And, and now all these rights, more fundamental rights, the Chinese people didn't have, you know, for the last 2,000 years. And today, for the first time in, in three to 4,000 years, people, China eradicated poverty. Zero. Now, that's one of the most incredible, impressive achievements in human history. And I want to tell you, just to emphasize why this is so important to me. When I grew up in Singapore, uh, uh, now Singapore is very wealthy. The per capita income was, of Singapore was $500. When I went to school at the age of six, I was put on a special feeding program because I was technically undernourished because I came from a poor family in a poor Singapore. And, you know, we didn't have a flush toilet. Uh, we had gangsters killing each other on our doorstep. So I have lived through third world poverty. And I can tell you, when you have that kind of poverty, you don't ask, oh, do I have the right to vote? Do I have the right to, you know, uh, speak out? The first one, you're more interested in surviving, the, getting the most basic needs. And, and in, in the evolution of Asian societies has shown that as you first got to deliver all this, then things change. And things will evolve. And China will, can also evolve. And the best way, I want to, this is the most important point. If you want China to behave better, don't insult them in public. Talk to them privately. And say, hey, we have some concerns. And, and Xinjiang, for example, I would say, yes, it's right to express concerns about Xinjiang. But, you know, I, I've learned in life that you can either try to feel good or you can try to do good. You can feel good by condemning China and Xinjiang, but you can do good by talking to them privately and say, hey, can you think there's a better way of managing this? And in the past, by the way, I think I, 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 heard, I heard a podcast interview with Susan Taunton, where she said there's been a very 
deep study done to show that the years of United States engagement with China did work and did result in Chinese changing their behavior on many issues through the process of quiet engagement. Mm -hmm. And that's what I recommend for the United States. So you would not have uh, taken the tack that Anthony Blinken took in his initial meeting, if you recall, with uh, his counterpart in China, which annoyed the Chinese to, to, to no end. I, I forget whether he explicitly mentioned Xinjiang. He certainly alluded to it. He certainly alluded to Taiwan. He certainly said we have big issues. And in return, he got a lecture from, I think, mm. the Chinese foreign minister that was mm. taken in America as as being uh, kind of aggressive. But I guess you would say, like, you know, uh, this is going to happen increasingly with a more assertive China if you take make your criticisms public as opposed to private. That is, is if the U.S. government does. Mm. But I think you and I know that the reason why Anthony Blinken had to do that, and I, by the way, I just spent two months in the U.S. in October and December, and the level of anti-China sentiment in the United States is actually quite frightening to me. Because I, I've lived in the United States for many years as an ambassador to the UN altogether over 10 years, deputy chief of mission, Washington DC, two and a half years. I lived in the United States for 15 years. So I, 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 mean, I can say with some confidence that I know the society. And there was a time when China was regarded as a competitor, which is understandable. It is a competitor, no question whatsoever. But now China is no longer regarded as a competitor, it's regarded as the enemy. And therefore, Tony Blinken was not speaking to the Chinese. He was talking to back home and saying, look at me, I stood up to the Chinese. But if he really wanted to influence China, what you should do is what all diplomats do. Make absolutely boring public statements, <laughs> which say nothing which actually are very useful. And then in private, you say, hey, we have some concerns. And then you get the results. Yeah. And I think that's the best way to approach China. And China is, 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 China is also becoming more and more confident by the day. And I think that's also the signal that Yang Jiechi was giving in his very strong response to, to Anthony Blinken that we will no longer take lectures. And at the same time, the thing that worries me is that the Chinese are also, as a result of all these American pressures, becoming more and more nationalists. And you know, as you know, Napoleon once famously, famously said, let China sleep, for when she wakes, she will shake the world. And now we're going through the period when this dragon is waking up. Now, if you want the dragon to wake up happy, don't goad it. And that's why the neighbors of China don't go China. They don't do it. I mean, there are differences, right. serious differences with China. And so, but you manage it. And I want to be clear. And, when and so, the best way of ensuring we don't get an angry dragon coming out is don't right. goad it. And but and if I all these assaults by United States are going to sadly create an angry dragon which is not in the interest of the United States and not in our interest the rest of the world. 
And to be clear, when you, I mean, first of all, when you say assaults, I think you mean rhetorical assaults, but, but to be further clear, I think you're not just saying that to the extent that we criticize China in public, the Chinese leadership will respond antagonistically. I, I, I think you're saying to the extent that we criticize them in public, the Chinese leadership will have more public support for a nationalistic policy. In other words, we are increasing grassroots nationalism within China. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and in some ways, you know, the, the conventional view of many Chinese scholars in the United States is that it was China's mistake to give up Deng Xiaoping's hide and bide stuff and all that. But, you know, when, when Deng Xiaoping advocated the hide and bide philosophy, China's GNP in 1980 was 10% of the United States in purchasing power parity terms. Now, if I am standing next to a giant that is 10 times my size, I will hide and bide. But in 2014, in purchasing power parity terms, China's GNP became bigger than the United States. So you expect this new giant to hide and bite and behave like a pygmy? That's so unrealistic. So obviously, China is going to become more assertive. It's happened naturally. In the, just as the United States, as you know, in the 1890s, when Teddy Roosevelt became Secretary of Navy, what did you do? You seized territories. You declared war on Spain. You conquered Philippines, right? And that's why Graham Allison is absolutely right when he says, and I cite him in my book, he said, he said, Americans keep wishing, why can't China be like us? He says, no, 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 please don't wish for that. China today in the, in the year 2022 is where United States was in 1890. We don't want China in 2022 behaving like United States in 1890, declaring war on countries and conquering territories that belong to it. Okay, now you so said... That's, that, that's, that, so you've got to understand at which point in history China is and let us nudge China and push China towards becoming uh, what I think Bill Clinton put this very well, by the way. You know, I cite him every time in my speech. In a speech in Yale he gave in 2003, Bill Clinton said, he said, if America is going to be number one forever, fine, no problem. We got the juice. We can do whatever we want to do. Then he added a but. But if you can conceive of a world where America is no longer number one, and it's going to happen within 10 to 15 years, by the way, then surely it is in America's national interest, I come back to your original words, national interest, to support stronger multilateral institutions, multilateral processes, multilateral norms, multilateral habits, you know what you know you know what all this will do it will constrain china and everyone in the world would support the united states when it does that because the united states would also be constraining itself and it's a better world for all of us yeah uh, and of course the united states has not in fact uh respected international law very consistently Clinton himself did not, uh, with complete fidelity, respect international law, but it's probably gotten worse since then. And so, as you suggested, when you talked about the South China Sea, it's a, it's a, little, it's a little hard for us to lecture China for uh, defying the ruling of an international tribunal when uh, 
when we've done that kind of thing um, ourselves. Let me let me ask no, you more, 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 more than that, by the way. Huh? The United States is the only country that hasn't ratified the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And it's in America's national interest to do so, by the way. And, and, and by the way, Bill Clinton, incidentally, wanted to give this speech when he was president and he was overruled by everybody. It's only after he stepped down that he had the freedom to express this piece of yeah. wisdom. But I can tell you one thing, though. He only said it once and never repeated it again. That, that 2003 Sadly. speech was the only... In, yeah, in Yale. You'll find it in my book as China Won and in the previous book, which I wrote on global governance called The Great Convergence, yeah. which tells a longer, the backstory behind that speech. Yeah. And the backstory behind the speech is fascinating because all his advisors said to him, you cannot speak of America becoming number two as U.S. president because if you, if you speak about America becoming number two, you'll be crucified. And, and this, is, this is the most amazing thing about the land of free speech is that even though it is inevitable that the United States is going to become the number two economy in the world, you cannot discuss it. You cannot speak about it. And, you know, as a friend of the United States, I would say, hey, if it's inevitable, start making plans yeah. for it. Yeah, well, the way I would have framed it, uh, uh, if I had been him and 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 was just intent on saying it while while he was president, is that what makes it inevitable that America's relative power in the world is going to decline is the success of the American model. Other countries have imported the American the basic approach to economics, and that's why they're going to become more prosperous. And we hope that as part of that, there will be at least uh, more in the way of political liberty or pluralism. And, and we should probably talk about this in the context of China. But in any event, there's no doubt that it's largely because of, of the emulation of the American uh, model that places like India and China have become more wealthy, that it was inevitable that America's relative power was going to de decline. And therefore, as Clinton said, it would be in America's interest to establish a world uh, of in which laws are respected and, and you don't have to worry about being invaded if you're not the most powerful country in the world. Uh, mm. I think you and I agree on that. And, and I think it's really one of the great tragedies of American foreign policy that either mm. there wasn't enough vision uh, to, to kind of implement that policy or, you know, beginning at the end of the Cold War, or there was uh, too much political fear to, to, you know, fear of the political consequences to pursue the but vision. You know, one, one person who incidentally, one of the wisest Americans who understood that the most important thing in any geopolitical contest is not what you do overseas, it's what you do at home, was George Kennan. And ah, in my yes. book, Has China Won, I cite him. And he said, at the end of the day, the outcome of the contest between the United States and Soviet Union is not going to be determined by how many aircraft carriers you have, how many jet fighters you have. He says, ultimately, it depends on the spiritual vitality of your society. You know, I was in Moscow in 1976. And I can tell you that Moscow was a dull and drab place. And you, and you really could feel the secret police hovering over you. you. You felt that you were in a repressive state, right? 
Today, when you go to Shanghai and you go to Beijing, you'll be absolutely amazed by the dynamism of the entrepreneurs there. Yeah, I mean, it's a bustling, thriving, modern cities that are, in some ways, in some ways, more dynamic than many American cities today. Yeah, right? I, and so at the end of the day, the United States should worry about the fact that it is generating a plutocracy at home, when China is generating a meritocracy, and the real contest is not going to be about how big your navies are. It's going to be which society does a better job of taking care of its people, and in the last thirty years, the, when the same period where the Chinese people have seen the greatest improvement in three thousand years of Chinese history, United States is the only major developed country where the bottom fifty percent has not seen an improvement for three decades or so. That's where the real contest is. Yeah, uh, and that's what you would have us. Uh, that's what you would encourage us to focus on: becoming uh, an exemplary society, the society we were once thought of as being. The and now, you can I, be again. You can be. I well, believe I hope, you can. From be. where from where I sit, it seems like there are a lot of challenges. But uh, I, I agree that with the right kind of leadership, we we could be. Uh, there's there's uh, our system seems to have trouble generating the right kind of leadership. But the um, mm -hmm. let, me, let me ask you. So I was in Beijing, actually, in maybe it was uh, it was either 2010 or 2011, I guess. First of all, you're right. There was a, a tremendous sense of vitality. Uh, there was an interesting sense of kind of uh, I mean, people may think of China as a very regimented place. And as you said, there's a lot of like kind of law and order in a sense. But there's also you almost feel like you're on the edge of order and chaos, right? I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kind of un, un, untrammeled energy, almost. You know, people riding bicycles with with you know two infants perched on the, on them, you know, uh, and yeah. and so on. There's just well, I guess it's 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 a testament to what you were saying that that the 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 peace, the the civil peace. Uh, is not entirely dependent on regimentation. I, it's hard to describe, but but you you got that sense. Now the other sense I got there was that uh, things were good at that point between America and China. I talked mm -hmm. to American journalists who lived there. They said it's great, you know, air pollution problem, but they liked it. I thought, hey, it would be a cool place to live. Chinese were very friendly, um, and Chinese uh, elites told me that they felt about as free as they'd ever felt. That 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 mm. uh, in terms of what they could say, things had gotten better. It all seemed good, uh, including the fundamentally at that point the relationship between America and China. Now, maybe in retrospect there are warning signs, but I think mm. uh, what's clear that uh, is that things have become obviously worse on on the China America relations front since then. Now, you said earlier that you think basically America started this that uh, they started the sense of competition of 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 confrontation even i suspect the american point of view would be or a common american point of view would be um well they one of two things they would either say well look xi jinping showed up and he unlike previous chinese leaders is is just this this kind of bad guy or something or this very uh uh or is uh you know ambitious in a way that other leaders weren't or something or or they might say, look, China's been doing these things all along that we should have been responding to. Uh, uh, in fact, 
uh, I'll give you an example. When I was there, I was given a USB drive. It was lovely. It had this uh, kind of Chinese stuff on it, and it was free. It was a flash drive. Now, uh, I, I think there are people who would tell me that I was crazy to ever plug it into my computer because that would have been part of a program to uh, infiltrate as many computers as possible and steal as much stuff as possible, which for all I know it was, I think I was so naive that I did put it in my computer. But anyway, there are these grievances that Americans have. They would say they've been stealing our secrets. They've been stealing our jobs. Although obviously it seems to me that, look, if they stole our jobs as a result of just, I mean, you can't blame people for trying to bring jobs to their own country. Uh, the um, Anyway, what, so that's an American view about how the trouble started between the two countries. What is what would you say about when we started causing problem? When we started, America started the the confrontation. Well, I, it began slowly, and uh -huh. it gained momentum. It started, I think, with Obama's pivot to Asia, mm -hmm. as you know. And why? Why did it happen? And Obama himself was very honest. The reason why he proposed the Trans-Pacific Partnership was because he said, if we don't write the rules, the Chinese will write the rules. And Obama did the right thing in, in signing the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And if the real competition that's going to take place within the United States and China, it's going to be in economics, by the way. And here, the amazing thing is that the Chinese have a strong, powerful, long-term trade and economic strategy, which is functioning and working. And, it, and China is signing free trade agreements with America's allies, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Thailand, Philippines. And America is retreating from free trade agreements. And, you know, a future historian looking at this will say, this is shocking. That's where America made its greatness. It was the world's most open economy in some ways, you are still the most open society. If there's one strength you have is your economic competitiveness, why are you walking away from economic competition? You're going to win it. You can win it. Mm -hmm. But as the Chinese today, surprisingly, have the cultural confidence to compete in that area. Now, the, you, when you ask me when things got bad, it's very simple. When Trump launches trade war against China. Okay. That's what that was an open declaration of warfare. And the amazing thing is that I know I, 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 when I was in Harvard researching my book, you know, it's Economics 101 tells you that when you impose tariffs, you're not punishing China, <laughs> you're punishing the American consumer. It's Economics 101. And Joe Biden himself said in 2019 in his campaign trail, all these Trump's tariffs have hurt American workers, American consumers, American economy. And yet, till today, United States cannot lift the tariffs. I was on a panel with some Harvard professors, and one of them says that America insists we will not lift the tariffs until China gives us something. And so he said, the Harvard professor said, yes. That's like telling your opponent, if you don't listen to me, I'll shoot my foot again. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that how you negotiate? I mean, those tariffs are hurting America. Well, they can't now, in the short term. They, they, that's what, they see, what you need to do, therefore, and, and you can work out in this area a win-win deal, which is a 
plus for American industry, American consumers. Now, China, by the way, has behaved badly in many areas. In fact, I have a whole chapter in my book devoted to how the Chinese alienated the American business community, which were the number one friends in America, how they stole intellectual property, how they imposed restrictions on American businesses, how there was no level playing field. The Chinese made serious mistakes. And, and I, if I was the United States, I would take that up very strongly. Yes, mm-hmm. there are issues that you need to take up uh, with China. But if you, if you uh, put tariffs on Chinese products, you know something? The Chinese trade surplus with the United States went up. Yeah. The, the, um, I mean, I would say uh, tariffs in the short term can, in principle, protect jobs. I agree with you that uh, the part of it that's never talked about in America is that it's bad for consumers and the people with the jobs are consumers. So they are, they are um, you know, it hurts everybody a little. Um, you, you, uh, but I would say there is more of a consensus in America than I think there's been in a long time that we need to use economic policy, possibly including selective tariffs um, to protect workers. Right or wrong, that is something that seems to have political support right now. The um, uh, just to be clear on what Obama was up to, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was going to be a Pacific trade agreement that initially would not have included China. I think there was some hope that China might eventually ask to be admitted, at which point it would be accepting the rules that were being laid down. In any event, that's a good example of something that fell by the wayside as part of the Trump populist resurgence th- th- that also brought us those um, those tariffs. So anyway, you would say that, uh, it sounds like you would say, there were signs of an American uh, kind of the a hardening of an American position toward China as early as Obama with the so-called pivot to China, which suggested that we needed to divert military military resources from the Middle East to Asia. Um, mm. But you would say the big step came with Trump. The big confrontation came with Trump. It, of course, was exacerbated by COVID, uh, which he mm. used to political advantage. And, and I've got to say, I don't think China has always been helpful here. Uh, they haven't been entirely transparent, I think, about the the origins of the virus, or at least they haven't been as welcoming as open investigation as some Americans would like. I think early on in the pandemic, there was what seemed to be a lack of uh, Chinese transparency, which I suspect had as much to do with internal politics and bumbling and stuff like that as it did with any intent to you know, keep the world deceived or, or anything. But in any event, all of that played into it, right? The Trump years plus okay. COVID, that, that, was, that was a watershed. Okay. I, 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 I'm acutely of every, everything you say. I'm aware that there is this perception that uh, China hasn't been cooperative and all that. And I agree that China hasn't been cooperative in many areas. But, you know, uh, international relations is a rough business, by the way. And everyone, uh, you got to understand, and you, you, it's, it's good to defend your interests. But a very quick note on COVID. The, one of the most prestigious journals in the world of medicine is Lancet in the UK. The editor is Richard Horton. He has published an article saying in January 2020, the Lancet published five articles warning COVID-19 was emerging these are the consequences. Start preparing. Get your masks ready. Get your hospitals ready. 
And, and, and he said many of these articles were given by Chinese scientists. And in January 2020. Yeah. So I think, I think were, you really want to be fair. There were warnings that were very clear. And, and you know, the other sad part of this is that the United States used to have a CDC office in Wuhan. And you shut it down as part of your efforts to disengage from multilateral efforts. And that's what multilateralism is about. Multilateralism means that there are CDC offices all over the world. That was during right. the Trump years that we shut it down, yeah, I take it. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, there, there, there are things that could be done. And, and we are an important thing also to understand that the world is changing fundamentally in, some, in many ways. And the one fundamental way that the world is changing, that COVID-19 and climate change is telling us, is that in the past, I use this very simple boat metaphor, when, when 7.8 billion people were living in 193 separate countries, it was as though we were living in 193 separate boats, okay? Yeah. So if your boat got COVID, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I'm on a different boat. But the world has shrunk. The 7.8 billion people no longer live in 193 separate boats. The 7.8 billion people live in 193 separate cabins on the same boat. So that's why when, when COVID-19 hits one cabin, Guess what? All 193 cabins get it. So you're on the same boat. So why are you, you know, this whole notion of sovereignty, we must protect ourselves. You know, point protecting you, protecting your cabin if the if the boat is sinking. So you also, in today's world, if you want to be a responsible citizen of humanity, you have to protect your country and you have to protect the world because your country is is, is completely tied to the world. And and that's why, you see, if, if, if the United States, when the global financial crisis broke out, uh, Bush and Obama did the right thing. They got all the G20 leaders to come together. They said, let's save the world. And out of $1 trillion, China contributed $50 billion. Now, when COVID-19 broke out, what the United States and China should have done is said, hey, this is a common threat. Let's convene a G20 meeting Let's spend $50 billion to vaccinate the world and that would have saved the world. Mm -hmm. Let me you know, now, that's what you need to do. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I certainly agree. And I, and I think, uh, well, yeah, I, I think I definitely have views about um, what America should have, should have done with respect to vaccine policy globally. The, um, so let me, I know it's 11, it's a little past 11 PM your time. I don't want to keep it. It's you, okay. I have a lot okay, of time. Okay, good. Cause I have a couple more questions. One is uh, uh, there had been hopes in America, and I, and I personally uh, put some stock in this idea that along with the economic liberalization, there would be some degree of political liberalization. Now, I know your view is that, look, if you're waiting for China to become a liberal democracy, you may be waiting a long time. And in any event, from the point of view of America's interests, it's, it's not essential that it happen. Uh, but I, I have a, a, a slightly different um, kind of hope, I guess, is that leaving aside the question of whether China becomes a liberal democracy, there could still be some degree of kind of, you might say, uh, political pluralization that accompanies economic liberalization. And an example of that, I, I've always thought was, you know, I, Americans may not realize it, but there are ways that Chinese groups at the grassroots level make their uh, their grievances known to the government, the government, 
And uh, and these have at times involved technology. I've read about, for example, when cell phones first uh, started appearing in, in China, you would have groups of people that um, say they might be out in some remote area and have some environmental uh, issue they wanted to bring it to the attention of people, some polluted lake or, or whatever, some grievance. And uh, as I understood it, they would sometimes use cell phones to organize uh, the movement, but there would be a movement and it would come to the attention of the Chinese government. And I think people don't realize that there's a long tradition of China having, on the one hand, centralized rule, but on the other hand, having very elaborate mechanisms of feedback by which uh, grassroots opinion in various places could come to the attention of the leadership. And, and I guess my question to you is, I mean, you might just say, look, more than we realize, there have been these feedbacks. There's almost been a kind of de facto uh, democratic feedback, uh, whether or not they're the, or, or the elections we'd like to see. Uh, but my question is also, has technology in any ways empowered people at the grassroots level? Are they using it to express their opinion to the government and so on? Anything you want to say about any of that? Well, uh, the honest answer is that it's complicated. Okay. And it works both ways. You are absolutely right. Uh, technology has been used to provide feedback to the government. I'll give you a concrete example, which I cite in my one of my books. Uh, there was a major crash within two trains. And amazingly, the Chinese Communist Party in that neighborhood wanted to bury the evidence quickly. So they began drugging, digging huge trenches to bury the trains and destroy the evidence. Of course, lots of phones took lots of pictures. It exploded over the social media and the Communist Party branch was, was embarrassed deeply and they stopped. Yes, you're right. It can work. But the Chinese system, Chinese political system, as I say, is very complex. And if the Chinese government just relied on repression to maintain order, it wouldn't survive. It's got to gain legitimacy from below. And as you know, there's a Harvard Kennedy School study, which I mentioned earlier, which has, you know, done fairly thorough research documented how support for the Chinese Communist Party went up from 86% to 93% over a decade, you know. And it's, it makes sense because, you know, if your, your, your life has improved so much. And, you know, the, when you go from the level that I did, okay, when you go from extreme poverty to having, you know, I tell you, for me, the, the, the one the historic turning point in my life was when you got a flush toilet when I was 13 years old. I mean, you have no idea I can how, much more dignity, how much more dignity comes to your life when you can flush it away, you know, instead of having a mound accumulate over 24 hours, you know. Just to tell you, put it very bluntly to you. And all these people have had this massive liberation, right? And they're saying, hey, my life has never been better. And, you know, if you ask the average Chinese today, will your children be better off than you? I tell you, 90% say, of course, they'll be better off. They have far more opportunities than I ever could have. By the way, you can't say that in the United States, by the way, uh, that their children will be better off. So that's where the real issue is. And we should not 
China is such a massive, large country, it will find its own way. The, the idea that we outside can try to influence them, I think doesn't work. But I do also think that the best way to influence the Chinese, because the Chinese are an extremely intelligent and thoughtful people. And some of the best private conversations that I've had are with Chinese thought leaders in private. And their minds are open and they are curious. And if you give them a better idea, they say, okay, let me try it out. Okay? And so you can have, and you know, you mentioned Xi Jinping earlier. In terms of quality of mind of leaders in the world, I would put Xi Jinping in the top 5% or top 10% easily. There's no question whatsoever. His understanding of history, his understanding of Chinese civilization. And by the way, Xi Jinping's main goal, and let me emphasize this, is not the revival of communism. He wants to make Chinese civilization strong again. He's driven by a deep sense of mission. And they feel that their hour has come. And, and paradoxically, therefore, the more confident the Chinese are, the easier it is to get concessions from them. The more insecure they are, the harder it is to get concessions from them. So it's in our interest to make them feel secure and work with them. And then, as I said, define what your core interests are. And for example, in the United States, to put it very simply, I have a son living in Pittsburgh, okay? very near the park where the bridge collapsed. I have walked in that park under the bridge, by the way. And when the bridge collapsed, I said, oh my God, where's my son? Right? Now, the, the issue is, it's not about how many aircraft carriers you have. Issue is, are your bridges safe? And you know, the Chinese infrastructure today is stunning. Yeah. They're fast trains. And I can tell you, I'll give you an example. The president of Indonesia went to China. And he, well, he's building a fast train, by the way, between Jakarta and Bandung. And he took a fast train uh, within two cities of the same distance. And when the journey finished, he said, I haven't finished my cup of tea. Yeah. How can this be? Yeah, okay. when I flew from the Beijing airport to, to JFK, I honestly felt like I had gone from a first world country to a third world country. I mean, I had never noticed how how dilapidated JFK actually kind of seems yeah. if you've just come from some, you know, futuristic uh, uh, place. But yeah. the um, so you mentioned Xi Jinping, he wants to make Chinese civilization great again. The concern uh, about uh, from America's end, one big concern well, one big question is, what does that mean? What, is, what does that entail, becoming great again? One thing you're saying is that uh, the more, in a certain sense, the more public respect we show China, the less we have to worry because the less insecure they'll feel. Uh, I, I, I think you're saying that. But, but I think uh, one question, a big question in America, a big assumption in America is that China wants to transport, uh, transplant its model all around the world. It wants to ultimately encircle America with authoritarian regimes, right, or, or autocracies, uh, and 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 I think people would pro some people would see the Belt and Road Initiative as as part of that. So I guess 
I want to ask you, what what is your sense for what the, the Chinese leadership actually does and doesn't want in terms of uh, reshaping the world? Um, well, uh, I, I, I'm glad you asked the question. I've been trying to think of some good news I can share with your <laughs> audience. Here's the best piece of news I can share with, the, uh, with an American audience, that Americans believe that they have a mission to improve the world. And the best way the United States can improve the world is by sharing the secret of its democracy with the rest of the world. And the more countries become democratic like America, that it will be a better world. And I, and I, by the way, I agree that democracy is good and I think it'd be good for the world to have more democracies. And I, and I, and I support that mission. But of course, the Chinese, by the way, unlike the Americans who think that anybody can be an American, the Chinese believe that only a Chinese can be Chinese. And only a Chinese can appreciate Chinese civilization. And if you try to go to China and you say, I want to become Chinese, they look at you say, well, you can speak the language, you can sing Chinese songs, but you can't be Chinese. You know, you got to be Chinese. And so the Chinese have absolutely no desire to convert the world to the Chinese system. And, and here, paradoxically, even though the Americans are liberal, they cannot accept countries with different forms of government. The Chinese are not liberal, but they, are, they can accept any kind of government in the world and they will work with you regardless of your form of government. So people talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. One of the countries that is enthusiastically part of the Belt and Road Initiative is Greece. But Greece, as you know, is the mother place of uh, democracy. And Greece will remain democratic. The Chinese have absolutely no desire to transform Greece in any way. All they're saying is, we can help you build a port. And, you know, at a time when the Greeks were let down by their fellow Europeans, the country that saved them was China with the investment in the port, right? So, and, and the Chinese will work with any country, and, what and does, they, really, they really don't care what system you have. It's your decision. You choose your system. We choose our system. And this, by the way, is also uh, under international law, uh, the uh, fundamental principle of the United Nations Charter, which is that each country should be allowed to choose its own form of government. Mm -hmm. And what does China get in return for its investment, so to speak, in the Belt and Road Initiative? Is it that the the economic terms of the agreement are sufficient incentive for China, or is it that it ultimately wants to not transform Greece's government, but to be able to exert certain kinds of influence on the geopolitical stage and have Greece vote with it in the UN or what? blah, blah, blah. I mean, what what is the logic behind the Belt and Road Initiative from China's point of view? Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned to you earlier that the Chinese are very deep and sophisticated thinkers. And whatever you do, don't underestimate the Chinese. And so the Belt and Road Initiative has got multiple goals. Goal number one is geopolitical. Because the Chinese anticipated 20 years ago at least that when they became stronger, the United States would try to contain them, like the Soviet Union. How do you, how do you make sure that countries don't join an American containment policy? get their economies linked to the Chinese economy. 
And that's the reason why China trades with far more countries than the United States does. Because if you trade more, you're not going to contain the country, your number one trading partner, because you're shooting yourself in the foot if you do that. Similarly, if you're, if the, you know, if you think a country like Laos, okay, it's one of the world's poorest countries. As Obama said, it's the most bombed country in the world in the Vietnam War. Laos today has a fast train, faster than any train in America. One of the poorest countries in the world. Now, if you are Laos, that's a mana from heaven. Can you imagine will Laos become anti-China after that? They won't. So there's a geopolitical objective. At the same time, after the global financial crisis, the, the Chinese realized, and this is a very important point that most Americans are not aware of, they always invested in U.S. treasuries, thinking that the investment in U.S. treasuries will give them some leverage over the United States of America. But what the United States did after the global financial crisis was QE, quantitative easing. Quantitative easing destroyed the value of Chinese holdings of U.S. treasuries. They had no more political value at all. This money was not making any money. Why not spend it? in the Belt and Road Initiative. And you know what? The Chinese are getting a very decent rate of return of 6 to 7% on that money, more than they're getting from U.S. Treasury bills. So, and most of their projects uh, seem to be succeeding and doing well. And, you know, most people think that the Chinese are uh, putting countries into debt. That's, you know, there's a paper written by a New York professor, Deborah Brottigam, that points out it's not true. There's no evidence for that. And again... This is, the, this is a very important point. I hope any American audience will hoist in. Most countries in the world are intelligent countries. Most countries in the world are not stupid countries. If 140 countries decide to join the Belt and Road Initiative, it means that they have made a very intelligent, long-term calculation that this Belt and Road Initiative is going to help me, mm -hmm. my people. I will benefit from it, regardless of what the Chinese get from it. So, you know, the, so when the Chinese launch something like this, and this is a 20, 30, 40-year initiative, and the United States doesn't even have a two-year initiative. Yeah. Now, the, it. the final, uh, this is kind of my, I guess, my final question. I, I will, uh, I know you have to get to sleep at some point. Um, but a big concern in America is, is that China may, uh, impinge on free speech in America uh, by using the kind of uh, economic power it's accumulated. The, the classic example is, is the NBA, right? The National Basketball Association. You had this uh, guy who was president of, an, of a basketball team in America speak out about Hong Kong. Um, China got upset and pulled, I don't know, did, did some... Uh, restricted its relationship with the NBA in some way that hurt the NBA. There's also the movie issue that if Chinese uh, movie studios want to enjoy the Chinese market, uh, allegedly they better be careful about how they depict China and so on. There's that whole uh, set of issues. Um, do you have a, a kind of a line on that? Well, uh, uh, three very quick points. One, the country that uses economic sanctions more than any other country in the world is the United States of America. Yes. And unfortunately, as to go back to Bill Clinton, you're setting a bad example for China. 
So whatever the United States does today as number one power, put sanctions on countries that disagree with American policies, China will do tomorrow. Point number two, Kofi Annan and I, the late Kofi Annan and I, co-authored an article pointing out in the long run, sanctions never work. Countries will not change their behavior just because of sanctions. And quite often, sanctions have the opposite impact. And number three, uh, if, you want the, if you want to get the Chinese to agree on some set of rules and do's and don'ts, what you do across borders, I would talk to them and figure out a set of rules and say, hey, you don't interfere in my domestic issues. And, 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 and by the way, the Chinese will say it's reciprocal. I will not interfere in your domestic issues. You don't interfere in my domestic issues. And at the end of the day, uh, the United States' best weapon is, is, what, is what, what's, what's called the shining city on the hill. Mm. Use your example to change the world, not your aircraft carriers or whatever and so on and so forth. So in the case of United States, if, if your free speech can be undermined by foreign interference. The problem is not foreign interference. The problem is the weakness in your society. But if you have a strong and resilient society of your own, you will say, you can say what you want. You're not going to affect American society, American culture. And America is still a very strong society. So you can, you can, you can. So I think there are ways and means of protecting yourself. So I, for example, I can tell you that United States has shut down Confucius Institutes, right? As you know, I think that's a mistake. Now, those okay, were, because the uh, Confucius Institutes are one way you get to understand why this civilization is going to be so different. Now, w- were there concerns about who was funding the Confucius Institutes or something? I, I wasn't really aware of this whole issue. It hasn't gotten much attention here. Confucius Institutes were, I mean, what were they? They were uh, kind of cultural and educational. Uh, institutions where you could learn about China and and what did the Chinese government partly fund them or what? Yeah, the Chinese government funded them, and they were they were intended to be Chinese language uh, uh, institutes and Chinese cultural institutes, and your and some of them unfortunately, stupidly you know began to say you can't do things, you can't say things, you can then you agree with them, and say you don't get in, you don't tell us what to say. Yeah. Okay. Right? You can you can tell you can you can you can lay rules down and do that, but Con- a Confucius Institute by definition will be a foreign object on your soil. But that foreign mm. object is a way of you getting getting to know a very different history, culture, and civilization. And Chinese civilization is you know an amazing civilization. There there depth of history there is phenomenal. And if we don't try to understand how that civilization thinks within its own minds, it would be very hard for us to deal with it. So we have to go through a process now of learning uh, about Chinese civilization and how it works, and then laying down rules and saying, you can do what you want in China, that's fine. But mm-hmm. don't take what you're doing in China to my society. I don't want it. Mm-hmm. And then the Chinese will say, that's fine. That's, yeah. that's how we Chinese do things. You can do things separately. 
Yeah, I've heard you say that your book uh, has China one is, I think you've said it's largely about uh, America's failure to understand both itself and China. Um, hmm. And uh, because I, I said, know thyself, know thine enemy. Right. That's a thousand battles win a thousand battles. That, and the United right. States ni neither knows itself nor China. And that's a problem. The, 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 that quote is from The Art of War, right? From Sun Tzu. That's right. The, um, Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu. Well, yeah. I Look, I, 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 I spent all morning working on pronouncing your name correctly. You can't expect me to get all these Chinese names correctly as well. Uh, the, the, uh, so, uh, the, um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, so I think the the answer to my your answer to my original question, what would you focus on? Uh, if your concern were America's national interests, you're basically saying, let China be China. Focus on making uh, America better in in uh, in the context of its own ideals and values. Um, That's right. And keep your ideals and values. Yeah, and show that you do better. Yeah. Keep them. Uh, make America. Hang, hang on and, and make sure that the American people are better off. Yeah. Okay. So we, uh, I, I certainly, uh, I do encourage a project of national renewal in America. Unfortunately, Americans disagree over what exactly that should entail. And that's part of the trouble. But listen, I want to thank you so much. It is late there uh, in, uh, in Singapore. Um, again, the name of this book is Has China Won? The Chinese Challenge to American Primacy. I really encourage people to read it. But you also mentioned another recent book. You've got one other recent book you published. It's about Asia, it's, uh, not China, right? It's called The Asian 21st Century, and it's absolutely free. Oh. It's an open access book. Oh, my you God. Can, it's been published by Springer. And you just Google The Asian 21st Century. And what is shocking about this book, uh, Bob, is that it was released a month ago. And as of this morning, it had 412,000 downloads in four weeks. Really? Well, yeah. uh, well, congratulations. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. I mean, it's free, of course. It's yeah, free. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... But uh, the, of the downloads, uh, one quarter came from Singapore, 20% from China, 18% from the uh, United States, 15% hmm. uh, from Malaysia, 14% from Australia. So it's it's amazing. This shows you how small the world has become. That you know, I published a free book four weeks ago, and it's downloaded all over the world. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is. And speaking of small world, I've heard you say elsewhere, and I know it's your view that that one reason uh, we should we should try to minimize the needless uh, tension between the U.S. Uh, and America is because there are. There are big problems to solve, uh, ranging from pandemics to uh, climate change. So uh, I, uh, I I really appreciate your um, your working on on that project, minimizing the tensions. That is, and and thanks so much for taking uh, for taking the time. And uh, I encourage people to read the book and to Google the Asian Peace Program, which is also your thing. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, we're back to tape a brief addendum here in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which hadn't happened when we had the first part of this conversation. Uh, you've been kind enough to uh, spend another 15, 20 minutes with us on this subject. I really appreciate that. Um, let me try to set the stage quickly. 
So I've heard a couple of different kinds of reactions uh, from people who are trying to assess China's reaction to the Ukraine invasion. At one extreme, you have people saying, look, China loves this. Now the U.S. will be distracted. We'll have to devote more military resources to Europe, not only during the war, but for some time thereafter. So this will impede our pivot to age to Asia, China will have a freer hand in the in the Pacific and so on. Meanwhile, they'll get cheap commodities from Russia because nobody else is is buying some of them or fewer people are buying them. The other kind of reaction I've I've heard at the at kind of at the other extreme is, oh, this is very uncomfortable for China to because they're kind of associated with this in a way. And part of the backdrop for that, of course, is that uh, right at the beginning of the Winter Olympics, there was a high-profile appearance between uh, Putin and Xi Jinping. They got together, kind of bonded, uh, released a joint statement, which on the one hand, it didn't mention Ukraine, but it did call for an end to NATO expansion. It said that Russia and China had a friendship that was, quote, without limits or something like that. So the, the logic here is that China really doesn't want to be associated with a pretty plainly illegal invasion and and, and and they don't want to be associated with the publi- all the publicity, all the you know atrocity and so on. So those are two different kinds of reactions. I've heard they're not really logically incompatible that China is having a mixture of reactions, but I wanted to start off by asking what your take on this is. Well, I would say the situation is complex, but overall, uh, what's happened in Ukraine has been a major setback for China. And I'll give you at least f- five reasons. The first reason is that the Chinese, to, to sustain their growth and to become the number one economy in the world, just need global stability. This Ukraine event has been hugely disruptive slowing down the global economy, shaking up everything. And the Chinese, you know, because of their civilizational history, just hate chaos. There's a word for chaos in Chinese, Luan, which they hate. That's reason number one. Number two, their number one partner, even if it's not technically an ally, Russia, would have been better for China to have a strong Russia rather than a weak Russia. Now, it's very clear that Russia is bleeding in Ukraine. Russia has been badly hurt, and the financial sanctions have been tremendously damaging uh, to the Russian economy. So now, uh, China's number one partner, which used to be strong, has become seriously weakened. And the third reason is that, you know, the... China has been trying very hard to deal with Europe and the United States as two independent poles and trying very hard to avoid a strong, cohesive Western alliance working together uh, against China. And by and large, that strategy with ups and downs has been quite successful because the Europeans have their own interests with China and we're quite happy to have a slightly differentiated policy uh, towards China from the United States of America. But now, the biggest result of this uh, Ukraine uh, invasion has been a regalvanization of Western solidarity 
And clearly, uh, for, for, for a variety of reasons, the strategic interests and, and perspectives of uh, United States and Europe have converged. And this convergence of strategic interests in the Western alliance is a setback uh, uh, for China too. And then, of course, uh, fourthly, there is a rather triumphant mood in Washington, D.C. that says, hey, guess what? We did it. We really fixed the Russians. We cooked their goose. And now we are winning this war, right? And so instead of dealing with an uncertain, maybe even nervous Washington, D.C., China has to deal with a strong, confident United States after the Ukraine episode. And the fifth point I'll make, of course, is that from, from the Chinese point of view, the biggest shock, maybe a nuclear shock that they got, was the effectiveness of the economic sanctions on the Russian economy. And now they must be thinking, gosh, how did half the central bank reserves of the Russian central bank evaporate, boom, right, overnight? Now, you know, if Russia's got 640, 650 billion US dollars, China's got $3.2 trillion. Now, what happens if $1.6 trillion just gets seized and disappear? That's a big deal. So I'm sure there's a major uh, strategic rethinking in, in China about the real meaning of this Ukraine episode. And I'm sure that they're not happy and they're not celebrating. Okay, now on that last point, the possibility that that the West uh, might do to China something comparable to what they've done to Russia in terms of sanctions, possibly including even seizing the seizing of central bank assets that are that are, I guess, uh, assume the form of, you know, U.S. Treasury bonds or whatever it is that gives us access to them, which I totally understand. But in any event, the only scenario in which I can imagine such a draconian reaction to something China did would be, at least among those those kinds of Chinese initiatives that are discussed, would be the invasion of Taiwan, right? I mean, that, that must be something they're, they're thinking about. And uh, that's a kind of a complicated subject because in some ways it that would be analogous to what's happened in Ukraine. China would, would of course, emphasize the differences. They would, uh, you know, that although Putin has said, well, uh, Ukraine was in some sense never really a country in the first place, the fact is its, its status in international law is clearly as a sovereign nation. Taiwan's status is a little more ambiguous, even, even as it's framed in U.S. policy. Certainly in China's mind, Taiwan is not a sovereign nation. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, do you, do you, first of all, do you think that in terms of sanctions, the possibility of sanctions afflicting China, Taiwan is the main context where they are thinking about this? And more broadly, how do you think this has affected China's thinking about what they can and can't get away with in Taiwan in the future? Uh, well, you're, you're absolutely right when you say that the, the Taiwan situation, Ukraine, Ukraine situation, uh, they're not analogous because Taiwan, you're right, is not a member of the United Nations. It's not an independent sovereign state, not recognized as an independent sovereign state. Uh, and by the way, even those 
countries which recognize Taiwan diplomatically recognize it as the legitimate government of China. <laughs> they don't recognize it as the legitimate government of Taiwan. And China is actually very happy that they recognize Taiwan as the legitimate government of China because it, it confirms the, the, the Chinese point of view that both of us are one territory, but you have two governments, two rival governments claiming uh, control of that territory. So that fiction actually works in the Chinese uh, interest. Now, you're absolutely right also about the Chinese thinking very hard about the implications of this uh, for Taiwan. And for, for a start, I'm sure that militarily, the Chinese must be aware that the even if you have a superior military force conquering and occupying a country where the population against you is against you, is very, very difficult. But at the same time, you also have to emphasize that, you know, uh, Taiwan is an island. And, you know, it's, you, you can blockade an island. You cannot blockade a land, uh, landlocked country like Ukraine. So there are fundamental difference there. But overall, I would say, regardless of what triggers it, it will be absolutely irresponsible of the Chinese officials not to start thinking about what would happen to China if, if any of the sanctions that US and the West has put on Russia are replicated uh, on China. And by the way, I think I'm, I'm not an expert on international law. Technically, when you seize a country's central bank reserves, you are actually not being taken away. Uh, it's an act of war. I mean, you're taking away their, a part of their sovereignty. They have a sovereign right to their what they own. And so that, that's something that I think Russia doesn't have time to focus on now. But that's something that is uh, surely a, a big shock to the Chinese. But I would say, I want to emphasize the point, not just to the Chinese. You know. Many governments around the world, including, I suspect, a country like India, for example, which has now told Russia they'd rather deal, have a rupee-ruble exchange rather than use the U.S. dollar. Uh, the, some of the Arab states are also moving away from the U.S. dollar. The biggest danger that the United States has faced is that it's brought out its sharpest weapon. You know, it's weaponized the U.S. dollar. And now it's created a massive global incentive for countries, especially China, to in one way or another reduce their dependence uh, on the U.S. dollar. And so it's a, it, it, it's a tragedy because... As you know, the, when the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency, it gives Americans an exorbitant privilege to quote a French president because the Chinese have to work very hard to send you iPhones and all you have to do is print money <laughs> and you can pay for the iPhones. So that's the fundamental, that's the fundamental privilege of having a global reserve currency. And if, I mean, if this and any economist will tell you this, if the United States ever loses the privilege of having the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency, there'll be a massive hit on the U.S. economy. Well, not only that, doesn't China, among other nations, stand the greatest chance of being the successor to the U.S.? I mean, should, should the U.S. cease to, to uh, have kind of the global currency? Uh, and you assume that 
somebody winds up having one, isn't that likely to be China? I mean, I mean, in, in the near term, I think, for example, Saudi Arabia, I think, has said they will now start doing some transactions in the, in the Chinese currency that they had been doing in the dollar. We're a long way away from that, of course. And, and it could be that the successor currency, if there is one, is none of the above. Maybe it'll be cryptocurrency. I have no idea. But, but there, there is that prospect, right, that it, that it isn't just that the U.S. is kind of leaking a certain kind of soft power here, that, but maybe it is that, that power is going to China. Well, I think it won't, it, it, by the way, it cannot happen anytime soon. Right. Because the U.S. dollar is so overwhelmingly powerful uh, in the global financial system, nothing can replace it anytime in the near future. And the renminbi cannot replace the U.S. dollar because it is not convertible. There's no, there's no free capital movements in and outside of China. So therefore, that, that almost disqualifies it for being uh, a global reserve currency. But at the same time, I'm glad you used the word cryptocurrency because there's some kind of digital uh, currency, some kind of digital renminbi that it's conceivable that the Chinese can create, maybe backed by gold, that people and countries can say, okay, I will use that currency for my international trading instead of using the US dollar. Mm-hmm. On the assurance that that currency is backed completely and not one subject to the whims and fancies of a government that can uh, change it. So there, there is a definitely a market opportunity now uh, uh, for for China to create such a currency, but this cannot be done quickly uh, or easily. And therefore, the Chinese um, will have to go back to what, in theory, they're good at, which is strategic patience. And they will now say, okay, we'll wait another 10 years. Maybe wait another 20 years. Because now we know we're now dealing with a more formidable opponent than we thought we had. So that's changed the strategic calculation uh, even in the U.S.-China geopolitical contest. By the way, I do discuss this subject in my book, Has China Won? Okay, good. Uh, One final question. Um, So we've just pointed to one sense in which there could be some good news for China here, what about the other the other sen- the senses in which there could be some good good news? You clearly believe on balance the invasion of Ukraine, especially given how messily it's playing out, is bad news for China. But what about some of these points? Like, well, more American military resources will be tied up in Europe in the future, and so on. Is China looking at some of these things as the silver lining uh, around the cloud? Well, here's the big, see, the the American invasion of Iraq was a major geopolitical gift to China. And I've discussed this several times. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the United States military was bogged down fighting a war. And when U.S. soldiers are losing their lives, Washington, D.C. gets obsessed and is focused on their war. The difference is that Ukraine is a proxy war. And as you know, the uh, United States basically got a tremendous uh, geopolitical dividend when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and got bogged down. And of course, the United States made the wise strategic decision to fight the Soviet Union 
right down to the last Afghan. <laughs> and the same ways, I fear the United States can also have a similar geopolitical opportunity to fight the Russians right down to the last Ukraine, Ukrainian. So they will not, the United States will not be bogged down in any way in Ukraine. Ukraine is just uh, all positive and no negatives for the United States of America. Right. This is, uh, this is, this is Russia's Afghanistan. The people of Ukraine are suffering. Let me emphasize that. Right. And that, and that's terrible. But in geopolitical terms, this is Russia's Afghanistan. It's not America's Afghanistan. That's happening. What's happening in Ukraine. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate, uh, your, your taking the time. Uh, I know it's late where you are, uh, and, and, and so, so thanks so much. And again, you, you've written uh, a number of important and influential books. One of the, the most pertinent recent book is, is uh, Has China Won? I certainly encourage everybody to pick that up. Thank, thanks so much. Thank you.